Good evening and welcome to Bad Talks here at the uh, uh, Boston Beer Company Brewery. Thank you very much for making the trip out here. Um, typically, we have our Bad Talks at the 342 Club at the Boston Design Center, but for Boston Design Week, uh, we decided to bring our talk, um, which is generously being, uh, being hosted by the people at the Boston Beer Company, so we're very, very thankful to them for that. Um, and in concert with Boston Design Week, we decided we're going to open our talk to the, uh, to the public, um, and specifically to homeowners who are interested in working on construction projects and are looking for insight and advice into how to assemble um, a very well-rounded team. Um, we've put together a great, uh, great group of panelists for tonight. Um, and we're very excited about the, about the topic that we have, about the number of folks that have responded to the topic. If you're not familiar with Bad Talks, um, please visit us at badtalks.com, our website. You can see videos of past talks. Um, you can kind of understand what our mission is, which is um, to create a community environment where we gather four times a year to have uh, a conversation and a discussion about topics that um, affect the builders, architects, designers, and tradespeople um, that we all work together with every day. So uh, thank you very much for coming. Um, please know that Bad Talks is a, um, <clears throat> is a venture that is, um, that is put together by us uh, to, to kind of keep the conversation going in our industry. And so what we're looking for is topic suggestions all times. Um, if you visit badtalks.com, you can submit um, your topic for consideration for a future talk. And uh, hopefully in the coming uh, sessions, we'll be talking about your idea, which I'm sure many other people in the room have. So welcome. Um, thank you for coming and enjoy. Thank you, John. Uh, I Whoa. Hello. <laughs> Hello. My name is Kyle Hepner. I'm the editor-in-chief of New England Home Magazine, uh, which is a high-end architecture, interior design, and custom building magazine here in the New England states. Um, uh, we were very happy to be asked to be part of the Bad Talks by John at United Marble and by uh, Paul and Linda at Cosman Wright & Hague, a wonderful cabinet-making uh, and woodworking company, uh, because Part of what we do, in addition to purveying beautiful things to the public, is also supporting the craftsmen and the companies and the people who make these wonderful houses around our six states possible. Uh, so we're delighted to be part of this. Uh, we're very happy also to be part of Design Week, as John mentioned, uh, and have a chance to reach out to a more broad public than we normally do. And we have geared this session accordingly. Uh, it's going to be basically geared toward people who have been involved with or are looking to be involved with renovation or building projects, uh, trying to address how you as a client and a homeowner can get the best out of your project and out of the people you choose to work with. And so we've got four wonderful people up here today who will be talking with us on that. Um, to my right is Christina Van Houten who is actually Senior VP for Global uh, Marketing Strategy for a company called Infor in New York. But more to the point tonight is actually owner of a beautiful house in Weston, which you will be able to see some of up on the screen over here. Um, Christina actually worked with one of our other panelists and some other people who are here in the audience to create that. 
And so we asked her to be part of this panel from the client's perspective, to bring the client in as part of a crucial member of the team, uh, as is very true of all these kinds of projects. We have Bob Ernst, or Robert Ernst, if you want to be formal, from FBN Construction in Hyde Park, Boston area. Uh, interior designer Andra Burkertz of Andra Burkertz Design in Wellesley, who actually worked on Christina's home. Uh, and a wonderful architect, John Meyer, of Meyer and Meyer Architects in Boston, who has also worked on many beautiful home projects, uh, both in and out of New England and well beyond. Um, so we have really four of the mainstays of any renovation or construction project here. Uh, just to start with, I would like to ask of the people in the audience, how many of you have been involved as clients and homeowners in some kind of construction or renovation project over the course? Wonderful, lots of people, some of them in the uh, industry and some not. How many of you think you will be involved in more of those kinds of projects going forward? Great. So we've got a lot of potential fodder here. Um, one thing I will mention about the bad talks is it's not like we're going to give a presentation and then have a question and answer period. We like these things to be very conversational and very participatory. Um, so I will ask you if you have something that comes up, a question anytime we're talking or something that is, would be nice to add to the discussion, sort of wave your hand and Linda, who is back there somewhere, has a microphone. She'll run over and find you. Uh, and once you have the mic, feel free to uh, chime in and help us out with the discussion here. So, why am I so loud? I'm, I'm facing toward the microphone. That's why I'm so loud when I do that. Um, just to get started, Christina, since you have been through this project, process actually more than once, and if you can think back far enough, once approached it as somebody who didn't quite know how to do it. What were your qualms? How did you go about even starting by thinking, do I need professionals helping me? How do I find them? That kind of thing. I, I think the, the process that was unique for us is um, I, I really came to it with some perspective from work and realizing that some of the, the best projects that I'd been involved with were those that had a variety of skill sets and that um, if you treated a team as a team of peers, that each brought a little bit of something different to the table. I, I use the metaphor of a Venn diagram quite a bit, that there's enough overlapping and there's enough uniqueness um, in all of those circles of the team that we would end up with the right place. So that really kind of set our operating model uh, on our whole project and the tone and the way that we work together. So anytime we had we went into it with some structure and we knew what we wanted to build, but there's inevitable ambiguity. And so the ability to, to kind of go into those open issues as they emerge as a team was, I think, a hallmark of our, our process. So did you start with one particular element of that, like a builder or an architect, or did you know a designer that you We did, with? yeah. The, um, the initial anchor was the architect decision, and the other members of the team evolved from that, some based on that connection with the architect, some based on other, other connections. Ironically, I actually knew Andra through her brother who I went to business school with and um, had kind of followed her over several decades and then contacted her out of the blue and said, I don't think I'm big enough for you, but um, is there any chance I can convince you to, 
to join us. So, and she had an interesting connection with with Paul Wright, who and Cochran Wright, who was also involved. So, um, the team, each member of the team, sort of had some familiarity with each other, but not a whole lot. So it wasn't as if it was a group that had worked together many times over and over again. And and actually, I think since then, maybe have because it it created a dynamic um, with the team. And we're actually. Ironically, that, that initial project, I think, was over three years ago, three or four, and we're just now kicking off a, a much bigger second phase with the exact same team. So it's nice to know you can get through an over 12-month-long project with, that was kitchen and, and very invasive and dirty, and it, you know we lived through it, um, and really not just end up feeling good at the end of it, but enjoying every part of the process and, and looking forward to not just having the second phase done, but actually I'm really excited about the journey again, so it'll be fun. Well, I'd actually open this up to the rest of our panel then. For people who are beginning this process, uh, some of whom may have contacts and some of whom may not, do you have suggested ways that you think are valuable for putting together a team or how do you find people to do this kind of thing? Sometimes people will start with one and then pick up more. Sometimes the whole team is assembled before anything happens. Do you want to talk about? I can do it. Can you do it? I can try. <clears throat> well, what's strange about my job, I'm an architect, is uh, I'll be sitting at my desk drawing a, you know, some bricks for a fireplace or something, just lost in thought phone will ring, someone will um, introduce themselves, so, some total stranger who says, I have this piece of property I've been putting together that's, you know, 50 acres, and, and I wanted to know if, if you would be our architect for our family. And I go, oh, okay. You know, um, <laughs> I go, uh, well, well, how'd you get my name, you know, first of all? And they, and it's, well, we saw it on the website, and we, we, and all the names of projects on the website have fake names. You know, they're called, you know, Admiral's House or something, because you don't put the people's name in. And I don't even know what they're talking about. They're telling me, we want it between the Admiral's House and the Lakefront something or other. And they go, oh, yeah, we can do that. But anyway, so um, you say, well, send me some information on your property and come in and see me. So then people walk in the door, and, and when I hang up, I go, my God, these guys, uh, this is a huge piece of property they have. It's so valuable. What they're going to build is so expensive. They don't know me. You know, they, I'm a stranger, and, um, and it's not just money. It's their family. It's their Christmas. It's their Thanksgiving. It's their kids coming home from college with their first girl. I mean, this is their whole world and uh, they're going to come in here and I've got about an hour and a half to explain exactly what we're going to do and how we're going to work together. I better be good. <laughs> so um, sometimes it miraculously works but, um, but what I do is you know they I, as, I, as I, a husband and wife always I ask them what do you want um, and, the, and there's and they all they have tons to say, and I'm looking for 
what it is that they love and what their goals are and all that. But I, I can give them homework and I can set them up that first time to get them into something where they're working on it. Um, and I insist. I, I say, okay, you have to do three things for me so I can do this for you. And they go, okay, I'm writing stuff down. You know. I said, uh, you know, the first one is you have to tell me what rooms you want. And not just, not just list them, but you tell me, you know, Aunt Matilda's or something was a place I remember as a kid. You tell me the quality of them too. So rooms, and then trace your footsteps during the workday and during the weekend. That tells me where things fit together. And then give me pictures, and I don't care if they're all different. They, you know, completely different. Just things that you think, and I'll put that together into, into a group of, of goals. Because when you do a project, you guys know this, it takes so long, and there's millions of decisions. There's doorknobs, there's, you know, there's like thousands of these little things. And unless you have, this is the list of things we were trying to accomplish in the first place. And you sit down and you go back and say, this, this is how we're going to make our decision. That'll change, but you always have you know, that point to go back to. And, uh, but I say, this is the important part, though, is, and I learned this. I said, you can't show the list to each other until you come back here. And the reason I do that is, if I say, work together, I'll never get it. If I say, don't show it to each other, I'll get it tomorrow, you know, before the spouse gets in with their, you know, requirements. And, uh, but then, then, you know, then they're up and running. But I have to explain, you know, what the phases are and how they work with you and how the money works and all that. But I'm talking too much. Sorry. Well, Andra, I think from the interior designer's point of view, I suspect your discovery process with new clients yeah. is probably similar in some ways as far as discovering kind of what people actually yeah. need? Um, it's definitely similar. John's sounds a lot more um, organized with the lists and the, um, but my feeling is, is similar in that <clears throat> from the moment I lay eyes on whoever that, those people are that called me, um, I'm looking, I'm looking. And generally if I meet in their existing homes, I'm looking at what's what's in what's around them, what's on the walls, what's on the floors, you know, what where their sensibilities are, um, and then I think I just start, a, you know, a kind of a mental file, followed by usually a similar request once we get further into it to provide me with anything that that is is um, that either you've held on to that, that means something to you, that you like visually, rooms that you've seen that you like, uh, pieces of furniture. Because um, I really am, am trying to sort of create a, a, a you know, a, a cross-section of who these people are. So it's very, it's, it's, I always refer to it as, you know, part psychology, part, part, you know, design, but you really have to pay attention to who it is that you're, you're potentially going to be working with and what, what they're really after. In our years of experience with the magazine, uh, I mean, I think the vast majority of projects we've gotten have happened in a couple of different, well, actually two or three different ways. Um, quite frequently, as John has mentioned and as Christina mentioned, people will start with an architect. Um, and the project will begin to evolve there, and then later in the process, as need be, 
a, a builder will be brought in, craftspeople will be brought in. Sometimes a designer will show up at that point. Sometimes a designer won't happen until after the house is up. Um, some people we've known actually, and I don't know if this is a first time thing or if it's people who have done it before, will intentionally hire all of the people who are going to be on the project up front so that all discussions and all kind of sharing of information happens from the get-go. Um, and then some people who have a pre-existing relationship with either the builder or the interior designer may sometimes start there. Uh, I've known designers around the area who have sometimes gone to look at houses with people when they're trying to buy, advising them on real estate and then helping them find the other kind of, I mean, as professionals and Christina, as somebody who's been through this, I mean, what are the pros and the cons of starting with one member of the team versus getting everybody together? It's, oh, go ahead, do you wanna? No, I was just gonna say, you know, it's, it's funny, about 75% of our work comes to us through a referral, either from the homeowner who may already have a design team in place or from a designer or an architect who we've done a lot of work with and they come to us. The other 25% of the time, we're getting a call first, whether it be a referral from a homeowner um, or somebody we've worked for before. And you know, I take a different approach than I think um, you guys outlined from the minute I get there, I actually start thinking about, all right, what do these people need for a team? And it's, it's just a different approach. Uh, to me, I think when they come to me, my job is to get it done. Your guys is to you know, figure out their problems and the design issues. My, my job is to get it done is the way I look at it. And to get it done, bringing that team together early um, is what I call a design build way of doing business, which I firmly believe in. I personally believe in they shouldn't necessarily be under the same roof. Um, but I think other firms um, have been very successful doing that. I like the idea of design build for the same reasons you said, where we can share all that information early. Everybody's on the same page. So I, I find almost no con to it. I think it's just a, it's the right way to do things, I think, especially nowadays. Things have changed so much in terms of the products and the processes and the systems, the regulations, the codes. Um, and it's hard for any one discipline to be up to speed with all of that, and I think we can all bring something to the table to expedite things. Yeah, I, I was thinking the same thing, that having everybody involved early was really the thing that made the difference for us, and what was interesting is we would, we would all be faced with uh, a particular challenge around, and it maybe you could have solved it with just an architect, or you could have solved it with just a designer, you know, depending on what it was, but having everyone involved in all of those where we're kind of stand-up meetings and the builder, you know, even the contractor who was on site added so much value to design aspects and lots of things that I think in a normal project people wouldn't have considered consulting them. And I just, I thought the chemistry and the, the diversity of strengths and and domain experience that each brought gave us an opportunity to really end up in a better place in every situation where we had something like that. And uh, I think it also, again, back to the chemistry and culture thing, it, it was sort of getting to a better place in each of those cases, but it also just kind of established a platform that made the process feel better to everyone instead of certain parts of the project feeling kind of hierarchical or somebody sort of feeling like, they're, they're sort of on the, on, in the dark on, on what was going on. It was really more of a, a kind of a, a peer review process. 
I mean, are there cost differences or cost implications there are. of one I mean, it definitely, it adds, versus the other? It, 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 it is a probably a more expensive approach up front, but I, 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 I think there are two things. One is it probably saves you down the road, for sure. I think by, by definition, that kind of a process needs to be very transparent to make that work. Um, uh, and, and I think that the transparency can actually help to manage costs in a certain way where the client can be in control of their budget a little more because of the transparency. Mm -hmm. So I actually don't think it's necessarily more. I mean, John, I know as an architect, I mean, you like often, I think, to be in on kind of the choice and selection of people you'll be working with. Do you see this from a different angle or do you have? Yeah, and, and first of all, I just want to say that the people up here are the top of their profession. So I'm going to disagree with some of the things they're saying. It doesn't mean they're not right or just as right as I am. So, so don't see it in that light. Is, I have a really strong opinion about that with a, maybe a couple examples for you. Is, is I think your architect has to be has to be your point guard. He has to be your valve through which all the information flows. And and it doesn't mean that the the builder is the most important person in the world to me because you design something as well as you can. You need somebody who from that point has the creative skills to make it beautiful. So there's, you know, I do nothing but protect the good builder. And, and the interior designer is the one that fits it up and for habitation, makes it presentable for the, so these, these guys are, and uh, you know, are, I couldn't have more respect. But a lot of architects now, it's fashionable not to do their job. They'll do a partial job and they go, oh, we're a big team. Let's all sit together and let's have 20 cooks in this, in this kitchen and we'll all add a little bit and, you know, the contractor can help with the design and, and, you know, and I'm saying this, but the architect has to be really humble. He has to put together this complete work of art, you know, that, and it, it's not in isolation. We, when we do our drawings, we bring in the best roofer we know. We bring in the best framer we know. We bring in the best structural engineer and let them tear all our drawings apart to make sure that, that we're dumb architects. We don't know how to build as well as a builder does. And we don't know how to you know, roof as well as a great roofer is. But we do it, and we do it complete. And here's the other part. It's really important. We count everything, and we price everything. So when we design something, and, and we, we take the owner through it step by step. By, by, we draw pictures of it. This is what it looks like. This is what it lays out with, and this is what it costs. That all those decision points, move them all the way through to the end of the job. Um, and then at that point, and at that point we decide who the contractor is. There's a bunch of great contractors, but we invite them all in. And this, so you, this is the opposite of design build, just for the, definition. Um, and we, you know, there's two or three really great contractors in the room, and we give them our plans. And our theory is you can't make something better until you make it. And if you've got a bunch of cooks who are just throwing something together, it's great. And if you have a great builder and a great designer, it's going to be fine. But it's not going to be 
everything it can be. So they start with something complete, they price it, they tear it apart, and when you're interviewing your contractors, you're not looking for the lowest price. You're looking for the best value, but you're looking for the people. You know, who's going to be on my job? Where were they last? And, and, and you find out, um, and you go look at their work. Number one, is it beautiful? Number two, um, you talk to the people they work for. Were they responsible in terms of time and money? And then the last one, are they somebody you want to hang around with for a year and a half? And then you, and then you know. And, and when you look at their prices, there'll be some prices that are wrong. You know, I mean, it's their cousin gave them a bad number or the quantities are off. And, and they come back in a week and they tighten everything up so we try to pay for ourselves like that. But then by the time you're done with that process, your contractor knows everything. You know, they, and they've talked to you and you know who they are. And at that point, you're ready to, to recommend to your owner who's, who's the person you think is gonna do the best job. And that's part of the architect's job, I think. Different take. So if I could open this up, does anybody else in the room, do you have as a client or as a participant in one of these types of teams, do you have any experiences or thoughts you'd like to share? Anybody? Quiet, here we go. Hi, I'm Eric Swanson. I work at Kachmer in Hague. And what I wanted to say is, you know, when we talk, everybody wants world peace, right? But the question is, how do we get it? And we can talk in generalizations, but for me, as a trades professional, it really comes down to who are the participants? Who's the architect? Are the drawings finished? Or are they passing their work on to us for us to do as unpaid consultants? Um, where did the prices come from? Did the architect uh, develop a series of budgets to which nobody can work? Um, and the challenge for us as fabricators, I'm a professional cabinet maker, and the challenge is that you know, you walk into a situation where something is not all architects, but possibly half designed and possibly budgeted in an unrealistic way. And then because the architect has the credibility, the discussion becomes about, well, so-and-so is just expensive. We need to find somebody more reasonable. Or, well, you know, they need to be a good team player, so they need to finish up those drawings for us because they're the expert and we defer to their expertise. So I'm not trying to go on some sort of anti-architect rant because it's not how I feel. But I think we can talk in general terms and you know, it just really depends on the team, it depends on the players, it depends on the architect, it depends on the GC. And I've worked with Bob. You know, you couldn't work with a better, we've worked with you. I mean, all these people are great, but the problem is not how it's structured, but who the players may or may not be in my opinion. Anybody want to talk about any of that? Yeah, you know, I, I'd love to respond to um, a comment you made earlier on, which I, which I like the way you made it because I you seem to. Oh no, not at all. No, that this panel, this is awesome. I think it's there are different points of view for the group. No, it, it was actually another comment, but it was uh, the comment early on how you were, you remarked how interesting it was that this person would call you, and say I want to hire you, and that leap of faith that they make with their family and their life and their property, right? How, how unusual that is. 
And I've also found that so unusual that with an architect, people are much more willing to do that than with a builder. And I often wonder why. And my dear late partner, Johnny, used to always talk about that leap of faith. And we'd get to that place with a client where, you know, either they didn't have all the information together, but they wanted to make a decision. Maybe they wanted to get going. Um, and, uh, or they had the plans and they've been thinking about it for a long time. They were ready to go, but they were having a hard time making that decision. And it really comes down to a leap of faith. And um, I think us as builders have a job to do to increase our credibility within the general public, where people look at us as professionals, as trusted professionals, rather than the guy that the architect needs to protect them from. And I think that's, uh, that's, that's some work we have ahead of us, but I think it's, it's the right place to go. You know, I only get 15 minutes, so cut me off. <laughs> But, um, but see, I think it's so unfair that, that architects don't know what things cost and, and they dump it all on the contractor to, you know, so it's the, and then it's going to sound wrong, it's the ultimate in having a dog guarding the meat wagon, you know? We're not talking like a, a bad dog, you know, we're talking about the lovable family dog, you know, who would defend you, you know, against all evil, but it's really unfair to ask him to defend the meat wagon, you know? Little Lila, it's just too conflicting, you know? Um, it's not unfair. Yeah. We do it all the time. I this defend that does. meat wagon but, better than anybody. But, <laughs> well, this does actually bring but, up an important question, actually, um, that Bob touched on and that actually when we talked briefly last week just to sort of discuss what we wanted to, to touch on tonight that, that Christina brought up, which is the element of trust. Uh, because all three of, I mean, we've left out the landscape architects and other people who ought to be up here also, uh, but certainly all three of the professionals we have here have a, a big responsibility and their work involves a degree of trust both among themselves and with each other and with the client. Uh, because the architect and the interior designer and the builder are all in positions where they're going to be causing someone else to spend a certain amount of money. And in many cases, depending on how the fee schedules are arranged, what they get out of the design process will depend on how they do that design or how they do that building. Uh, because, and so that's something that does have to be worked out, and maybe we want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I, I think there are two things that are certain, and that, that there's always uncertainty in every project, and you can do a lot of planning up front. And I, and I think one thing I want to make sure that um, I was clear on is it, architect absolutely is the captain of the ship early on, and there's so much importance in kind of seeing the board and the strategy that goes into that. But no matter how well those plans are drawn, no matter how much thought has been put into it, that last 20%, no matter how prepared you are, is just a land of uncertainty. And so I think the, the dynamics that you're talking about around the team and all that, it comes down to the team's ability to deal with that last 20%. And we all know that's, that's really where the magic happens or whether th where things go really wrong. And that's also where the trust factor comes in because it isn't gonna cost exactly what you thought. It's not gonna take the amount of time that you thought, no matter how disciplined you guys are. And so if you go into it with a relationship of 
of trust and that everybody's going to get to the right place together, then the fact that it maybe is a little bit more expensive, you all made those decisions, you made the right decision together that led to that point, but you all feel good about the fact that you, you made it in that way. And, and scope changes, it just does, they're just unknown. So I think that the problem, where things go awry is when those things, when that squishiness sort of exists and then there is that finger pointing on what you're saying like, I'm finishing somebody's job and all, you know, all of that kind of stuff. It just, that can sort of feed on itself. But I think if you sort of, you have these expectations about how that last 20% is gonna go, then that's, that's where I think the trust and the chemistry and the, that stuff works out. Well, this, actually, we've got a question here. I think, I think the idea of what Eric said is I that the trust has to extend to subs as well. Yeah. Saying, I think the trust has to extend to sub, subs as well. And when Eric says, Look, we think to execute your design and develop this, it's going to cost X amount of money. You have to trust his professionalism and his judgment and his honesty as well. So I think that extends to all the, all the subs. I think that's you know, a good point, especially because I think a lot of times you could treat subs in isolation and there are these interdependencies where you end up at a situation where it's it's sort of a combination of things that have to happen. And yeah, if you can sort that out in a way that makes sense, you end up yeah, in a much better place. Well, this actually, um, what we were just talking about there just immediately brought up to me another kind of big word for these kinds of collaborations, which is communication. So when you are the process, and especially from the client's point of view who may not have been involved in this kind of project before, or may be incredibly competent in his or her other life, you know, even running other kinds of businesses, but hasn't run this kind of project necessarily. How do you, as a professional or as a team, communicate and work out elements of schedule and cost? And then, as Christina mentioned, when things do start to get funky, as things invariably do in such complex projects, how do you kind of, what kind of communicatory strategy do you have or how do you recommend that these be things be handled to keep that element of trust among all of the people involved? I mean, Andre, do you want to talk about that? I mean, everybody um, will want to talk yeah, about that. Yeah, no, I, uh, uh, I don't think there's a, u a universal sort of way that it always works. I think um, my, my sense or my, my hope is that everyone goes into these projects with you know the highest possible intentions um, I, I'm sort of thinking about what John was saying in terms of why why would anyone call you you know but and to me it's clear they've seen your work they like that work they want that look for themselves they want to live in that kind of a you know Meyer and Meyer house um, but what after that comes the question of who's working with you and will are we making the house into a version of, of a Meyer and Meyer house or do we come in as completely independent um, a, an independent vision so at that point I think the communication issue becomes very important and that the establishment of the trust that I for example I'm not going to go in and mar his <laughs> work by doing something completely, you know, um, that doesn't make any sense in the space. Um, and the only way to do that is, it really is about establishing the relationships fairly 
early on and, and staying at it and communicating cons almost constantly. And it's not always smooth by any means, but I think it has to kind of go both ways. Um, Just to kind of be a little bit concrete and nuts and bolts, for example, I mean, when you were working on Christina's house, I believe you were brought in a little bit after Chip Dewing and actually Betsy Rosa, the uh -huh. architect who's out here in the audience being shy. Um, so kind of how did the communication process work then? Were there like weekly meetings with all of you or is it all independent conversations? Sort of how did that work? Yeah, it was very, it was, uh, it was Betsy, Paul, and, and Carla from Cockman Wright, Andra, and then the builder. And we pretty much, the four or five of us met for phase, pretty much stand-up meetings, I think, every week. And again, we had plans, we were working that, but as we, as each thing sort of unfolded, there were always, we were always hit with some, part of it is we're dealing with the 1920s house where you end up, you're not starting Greenfield, so you hit unexpected things. And so I think, but that enabled us to, to make progress on decisions and also tackle things that came up that we didn't know were, we needed to solve. Um, like a window was off, or ceiling didn't make sense. Or there was a lot of initial, um, uh, just sort of a little bit of getting to know each other. You know, Paul and I kind of re reacquainted ourselves with um, a certain kind of architecture that we grew up with in the Midwest that is a little related to your where you grew up in Oklahoma. And so I think we all were kind of feeling each other out to to make sure that. Uh, a lot of our um, a lot of our references were similar, and that we kind of I think that's a really good point. And I guess in picking the team too, that the fact that ever what I've worked in a lot of different kinds of projects like this with different people on creative stuff, and it's there has to be some shared perspective because you're trying to you're trying to get everybody to see something, but where they can take you there, but then take you to some place that you didn't know existed. And so I think for us that overlap, oddly, was this night some familiarity with what 1920s houses looked like or could look like, and the kinds of things that went on with 1920s houses. And so had we not had that share, everybody had a piece of that. I think if we didn't, we we would have really struggled. Um, Bob and uh, John, I mean, does this kind of weekly group meetings, is that a typical process for you guys, or have you handled it differently in other cases? Um, I'll start, yeah, so we do weekly meetings on every job. It doesn't matter how big it is. Um, and, you know, to be fair, I think certainly a new home or a custom home from a greenfield may be somewhat different in terms of the amount of communication. There's, there's a lot more you can lay out ahead of time and move forward. With a lot of the, with the remodels and the renovations, there's a lot of things that come up. So we have weekly meetings um, and they're always with the whole team, architect, designer, contractor, homeowner. Sometimes both homeowners can't be there, so we actually send out minutes from the meeting. At the end of the meeting, we put together minutes and send them out to the entire team so everybody's on par. Everybody can also review the minutes and be sure that that's what decisions were made. Um, we're able to then sort of shift the roles, like you said, the captain or who's in charge. I like to say, you know, there are roles. So I agree at the beginning, the architect is running the communication mm -hmm. and needs to, and there's so much that they're doing. We kind of take a back seat as a consultant along the process. Mm -hmm. um, as the project gets going, oftentimes, certainly at the beginning of the meeting, we try to start with the financials. 
and we make people stick to that even though everybody wants to get into all the design decisions. We, the financials are very important to people. So we start with financials and we go over those in a transparent way showing this is what was budgeted, this is where we are, then we do schedule. And then we move into the design decisions and the issues on the projects. And it seems to keep everybody moving in the right direction. And then we hand it off to the design team to, to do what they do best. But the budgeting and the scheduling, that's really our, our domain, I think. I think that's good. Um, we like to run the meetings, too. And I can see I'm starting to sound like a control freak. But, um, but, but the first question is where are we in terms of time and where are we in terms of money? And, and issues come up and you talk about those later, but to have a bunch of people sitting around for two hours at a meeting just drives me crazy, you know, when it could be done in 20. Um, but the, the real tricky part and the, the rookie mistake that you want to avoid is I think, I think the architect who's there every week at these meetings going through the building, he starts at the beginning. And the way he takes a, a client through the job is he says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw all these things, show you what your options are, cost them out. This is all you need to make a decision. Move ahead. They move through a whole job. They finish it all off. It's complete as best they can do. And they brought in every smarter builder person who knows a lot more about each discipline than they do, you know, to try to make it as, as, as good as they possibly can. But then the job's being built, the owner's walking around, contractor's there and he goes, hey, this, you know, this wall's in the wrong place. I just think we should just knock it out of here. And the owner goes, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Go ahead, you know? And in that particular instance, in isolation, it's a great idea. The thing is, the architect has gone ahead and built the thing. He's drawn every room. He's built models with all the trees. He's gone to the end. And sometimes he can make a decision now that has a tremendous impact way at the end that you can't see. That's what the architect has. So the architect has to be humble and generous and honest. And whenever a contractor tells him stuff, he has to be able to take it immediately to the owner to, to honor the owner's decision and not try to run his own little the game and all that. But to have that control point that you've trained for all that time and not use them, it, it'll scar the building if, if people don't honor that. And if owners knew that, and we tell them that, you know, don't ever get stuck in the middle like that. Always run everything through the architect and, and he's got to be trustworthy enough to make sure it gets, it gets to the rest of the team and fast. I think that starts with team, John, though. So I think that's if the builder doesn't feel part of a team, he may feel like he's going to make decisions on his own. And I think that that would never happen on our job. We would always say, well, listen, that might be a good idea. I'm not sure. But we but should run it by. But you're a great builder. You know this. Well, but I mean, Thank you. But, but, but I'd say 90% of the people are the new, are new. People make mistakes. People, rookies, brilliant kids, you know. But that... Communication is great, and trust is really important, but use your point guy, you know? I think this actually is an important point because it, it's a little bit more general than we're even making it, which is I think since we're hearing this whole thing sort of toward the client perspective, it means as a client, when you have a team, you shouldn't start making end runs around the communication that you've set up with that team. Uh, because if there are decisions being made in walkthroughs with only one member that nobody else knows about, 
something's going to go wrong and it's going to cost you a lot of money to fix probably. I think that's probably the, what I would take from this. And so if, in fact, you have set it up so that the architect is your point person, make sure that all communication happens in that way. If you've set it up in a different web, make sure that everybody knows because that way you get all of the input. Is that a fair statement, you think? Yeah, I think so. I think making the, the, the architect the point person about you know, the design issues is important. You know, budget and schedule are very important to our clients. And I think that's one of the things that's changed for all of us, and I think for the better, um, is that clients are so much more interested in being a part of it now. And they're so much more informed, if you will, you know, from the, their options and choices. So they don't necessarily just give it to you anymore. Say, oh, go ahead and make it beautiful for me. They want to get in and change things. And I love it, John, but can you add this window over here? So I think having a team that can actually back you up a little bit or say, well, that's fine, but the impact on the budget may not be. So I think, you know, having that point person, it shifts depending on the discipline. Well, actually, as far as just continuing on the theme of, pub, of uh, communication, and actually I'll open this up to everybody else also, um, in many cases, not necessarily all, you're often dealing with a couple on one of these projects. And in many cases, not necessarily all, one or the other will end up being more involved in certain ways. And the other may be involved in different ways or may not care or may only care occasionally. I mean, how do you kind of negotiate and make sure that all stakeholders in the process are kept informed and happy uh, and good partners in all of this? Maybe Christina, if you wanna. <laughs> I, you're, you're hitting on something I think is so important and I hadn't really, thought. I've thought about it kind of passively, especially because we're now right in the middle of our second phase and we, you know, you were talking about how the evolving captain role, I think that kind of happens in, in a two-person project on this, on the client side too. And uh, it just so happens that my husband's really comfortable and wants to drive the early phase. And just when he gets uncomfortable, I get really comfortable. So it, it, it happens to be a really good handoff that way. That said, I think what's been really wise, there are a couple of things one, um, on the part of the people that work with us is that even when I am very hands off at certain times and don't want to be involved, they'll force me to be involved, <laughs> which is great because I think they know that if I'm not, it's going to come back and bite them late, later, you know, that, that, that I don't know that I care, but that I will care once I, I get my header. And so I appreciate them them doing that and really kind of leading us. And I think the other piece of that is that the, we talked about where things can go right or wrong, and this is probably going to sound so cliche, but it really is about the ability to make decisions. And people, the average person really struggles with making decisions, and especially if you're on this side, because every stinking decision is money. <laughs> and so even though it's really hard to always do the right thing when you're clouded by money. So this may not work for everyone else, but we actually, the way, the way that we do it is, and, and this is what, the fact that this is so gender stereotyped really bothers me as a working woman, but I actually don't look at any, any of the budget stuff because, and, and it's not that I'm not reined in, but it's, I sort of feel like I want to make decisions sort of in, apart from that and then get reined in separately. So it's, 
it, that's not going to work for everyone. So we absolutely have a budget and we drive to that, but it's, it takes, it, it sort of creates a different dynamic when you can divide and conquer that way and kind of make the decisions at some level separate and then kind of constrain them in other ways. And um, the other thing I'll just say is I, I am, um, just from having my own business and that kind of stuff, I am sort of trained at making decisions, but I know it's a very hard thing for people. So I feel like it'd be interesting to hear what you guys do when you're working with clients, because I think that's really the magic about being a great leader on these projects is you're, it's like a funnel and you just kind of have to keep everybody going into the funnel and, so, and given the myriad of personalities, how you, how you do that. But. In because I mean, especially when you come to interiors, that's also often a place where clients will feel comfortable expressing opinions about you know their chair or exactly. the carpet that's going to be on the bedroom yeah. floor and things like that. Kind of how do you work people through that process? Of oh, go ahead. <laughs> um, I, I, well, I would say um, often. At the onset, clients will say something uh, related to this kind of, well, uh, again, gender stereotypes. The man will take care of the architecture, and my wife will be you know, working with you on the interiors. I, I hear that a lot. It doesn't always play out that way at all. Um, but it's, it really is part of, again, part of the, 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 the research into the dynamic of how the relationship works and that you can sort of determine at one point where what moments are the ones where we have to direct some of the focus towards the husband's let's say the husband's um, needs or requirements or a, a certain um, type of, of environment that he wants to have and sometimes it needs to flip back and go towards the wife it really is I always say this is a very fluid process. It is extremely fluid in the sense that you're constantly moving around. Um, it's rare for me to encounter someone who completely, you know, one of one or the other completely capitulates and says, I don't care anymore. I'll let her do it or let him do it. There's always, um, if it's if the if the the wife has taken over more than my responsibility is to make sure that we keep everybody in the loop we keep the husband in the loop and even if it's just through you know emails and meeting notes and and occasional references to things that that would be interesting for him that they go to him but it's a it's a it's a bit of a dance and you really have to sort of to figure out where where the um, where each person's focus is and try to address those things. Well, for all of you as professionals, do you have sort of recommended strategies for working with people to help them make informed and relatively quick decisions that they will stay happy with? Yeah, you know, I think probably the most important thing is that you make sure everyone sees every sensible possibility for each one of their problems and you present it to them in a way that they can understand it. That means that you, know, you draw the perspective in color inside and out 
and you show them the layout and you show them the cost breakdown. Um, but you show them for all the reasonable options. Um, the way we've learned this is, um, I remember developers from Texas would come into town and tell us to do something, you know, do this building, and, and I know what I want. Put this there and this there and this there and just do it, you know? So you do it and then, um, it's not really a spouse, but I'd say three months later his girlfriend would have a dream that the atrium was supposed to be on the other side of the building and why in the hell didn't you think of that in the first place? You know, it's never, I don't think it's ever one of the partner's problems. It's the architect's job to, to be the whipping boy in cases like that. So I just think it's important that you show for each one of the issues, at step by step going through, you know, um, is it two stories, is it three stories, is a stair here, is a stair there, and you, and, you, and you challenge them. Is there anything else you can think about? We covered everything, just to make sure, because the tragedy is if somebody wakes up, like this nut, but I mean ordinary people, they wake up when they're 90% of the way through, and they go, God, there's a better way to do it. And then they have to say to themselves, do I throw away everything I've done up till now and start over? Or do I live with knowing it's not what it should be for the rest of my life? And, yeah. That's a lot of pressure. I like what you're saying about the, your use case approach and how you get people thinking about how they're going to, it's sort of requirements and then use case yeah. flows. Um, but anytime, a, anytime a spouse it. says, I'm not involved, you know, they're going to do it, see you later. Don't ever believe that. Any because thoughts it, or questions after we've got Linda? Get the microphone to you. Well, actually, for the tape, we need a mic. I have a question. Um, two questions. Back to the, the best of the best. Not every homeowner can afford you four <laughs> or three up there. And, um, not every homeowner can also afford such a big team at the beginning. Any recommendations on snuffing out the, the not so great and getting, making sure you can still get good quality work from um, not necessarily the best of the best? And my other question is, not every project needs necessarily an architect and you know the interior designer. and. It seems like this, today um, you were just referred to as more of the decorator, and now interior designers can also draw and take down walls and design room layouts and kitchen layouts and put in cabinets. Um, what is your perspective on being the project manager and the interior designer, and that you are the end person? Those are my two questions. So your first question. Um, I get that a lot, right? Um, I think the most important thing and the, that, that people can pay attention to if they can't go out and just you know, hire that, that well-respected person that's got a great reputation and it's kind of like a no-brainer, right? We know we're going to be okay, is to make sure they make the decision of who they hire for the right reason. Um, and so if they're interviewing people at a different tier, maybe with lower, lower, um, with a lower overhead um, that can, you know, get things done, they might run into problems that we could solve with a larger company, but they'll handle them a different way. But the big thing is trust, and we've mentioned it a number of times up here, no matter who you're hiring, architect, designer, or builder, is, you know, you're going to spend 
tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars to do that without a complete trust in the person you're hiring that they are absolutely the right person for you at your price point. Um, and people make those decisions you know, based on either cost or schedule implications or because they're anxious to get going. So I think the answer to your first question is if you can't afford to hire somebody that's got that incredible reputation, make sure you interview and you don't stop until you find somebody you trust. The, the, uh, the one thing I would say too is just consider there's lots of ways to control scope and it's not just this part cost, it's there's lots of other costs that go into it. So there may be other ways I think whether it's materials or other kinds of things where you may want to, you may be more willing to make compromises and then have kind of the overall quality that you want, but it's, it's probably a tricky balance. Also, uh, it's true that we're, we're talking in a fairly kind of um, um, high-end kind of atmosphere here where you, you, you hire the team and you, you pay for four, five, six people once a week to sit there for two hours. I mean, that, that's an expensive uh, way to go. It, it has obviously many advantages, but the idea of a much smaller project that is with someone, for example, like me, that is very much about sitting down for a good long time and, and discussing what it is that you're after. What do you want to be able to do? How do you want to change these spaces? And then it's up to me to say, you may need an architect because there's structural work here or this or that, or I can say that's something that we do all the time and that's, that's completely within our, our parameters. So it's, again, a lot of front-end sort of uh, discussion to vet the person that you plan to work with. I mean, I would also just point out that in many cases, architects and designers' fees are in some way related to the overall project budget. Not invariably because there are a lot of different models, but a really, really, really fine architect could design a really, really fine, not terribly expensive, mm -hmm. not too fancy right. place. Right. And it might be a much better, not too expensive, fancy play, not fancy place than you would get from a less talented architect. And it might not cost that much more necessarily yeah. right up front. Right. Um, so I would, you know, don't feel like you can't look for the best person until you've approached them and they've, it's become cost prohibitive or they've said, oh, I would love to do this. Because uh, many people don't just do gigantic, yeah. you know, 20,000 square foot bells and whistles kinds of places. They might be very happy to do a little bungalow in Arlington or something that is really done beautifully. Mm -hmm. um, I was thinking of something and now I've forgotten it. Um, oh, actually, I, I did, uh, were there any other thoughts or questions kind of on this topic of communication or trust or team? Oh, Allison. Allison in the back. <laughs> hey, Alice. Allison. Um, hi, Christina, you're wonderful. Thank you for being here. This is, it's so rare for us to have the opportunity to hear from somebody in your position. Thank you, I'm so, enjoying being here. Thank, thank you, you for having me. And, um, and I think you're gonna have a line of people coming up and saying, can you please come talk to our clients at the outset of the project and help <laughs> I, them understand? Because what you know now is what we all would hope that our clients know at the outset because then we can have these kinds of conversations. And I think we as a collective talk a lot about how do we educate 
a new person who at that stage of the game is quite anxious about what's going to happen and how it's right. going to happen in sales. You're meant to be careful and protective. And I'd just be curious to hear from you and from the panel about thoughts about how to kind of break down that education process. Well, there, it's funny. There are two, the couple of things I wanted to mention. One is that I was the opposite of a Pollyanna about going into the project. I absolutely did not want to do it. I had a 70s kitchen that was just tiny and hideous, and I didn't care. I, I, I travel every week for work. I couldn't even get to the grocery store. I was I don't care. I'm not, I use the toaster. When, when, when we had to put our kitchen in the basement, it didn't change my life at all. Like, they, I, I had a microwave and a toaster on my hu husband's uh, desk in the basement, and we sort of had a sink next to the laundry. And um, so I, I went into the whole thing dreading it. I just didn't think it was necessary. And then that's what made the whole thing so amazing was that, that the process actually ended up. And then I said, oh, OK, I'm just going to suck it up. And I know when we get to the other side, it'll, I'm sure it'll be fine. you know. And, and I also I hate spending money. So I just, <laughs> the whole thing just really, I, I, I didn't want to do it. And um, so the fact that it all ended up being such a pleasant surprise and that the Again, the, I know it sort of sounds cheesy, but that I, embrace, I ended up embracing the journey. And, and a lot of that was because I enjoyed these guys so much and I got so much out of them. But, um, the, and it lasted a year. I mean, it's, it's a long time to be w with a group of people and, uh, and for them to put up with me. But it, it, um, so that, I just wanted to make sure that that was clear, that it, w it wasn't like I went into this saying rah, rah, and, and, uh, and I was, the other thing I would say, and I was, I was talking to them on the phone about this, is that I wonder, and I'm not sure this is true, but we were talking about personality traits and kind of this continuum of experience with these kinds of projects and ability to make decisions. And I'm wondering if you can almost, I always sort of look, try to come to frameworks, and maybe there's sort of three, you can bucket people into three major personality types or, you know, that are basically on a continuum. And, and you go in, and as, as somebody working with them, you sort of say, OK, if they're this type of person, like I need to deploy this model of engagement. And if they're on this other end of the spectrum, I'm going to, and even though we know that it doesn't, you know, nobody's exactly in a bucket, that there might be something to be said for that. As, and maybe as a group, this is something that with the magazine, you know, if you're going to kind of profile working relationships, and almost you could patent some sort of personality continuum and then um, kind of an MO around a prescriptive approach and how prescriptive or non-prescriptive that, that you are, but I'm sure it won't work. People are people, but. So, yeah, so exactly. we get one, one quiet one and one aggressive one. Yeah. One color-oriented one. Influencer. No, I think that's, to make, that's make everybody do a Myers-Briggs yeah. test. Yeah, exactly. Personality yeah. test. Well, I think, um, Kind of following on that, we've spent a lot of time talking about Christina's project for obvious reasons. Uh, for the three of you, just kind of to start summing up here a little bit, I would like you to think about other projects that you have been involved with that were especially successful and what there was about them, especially from a potential homeowner's or client's point of view, that made them so successful and that you would hold out as a model for other people. And anybody, feel free to jump in. This is a hard one. So, um, I'll start. You know, um, so there's a project actually. It's rolling up on the uh, screen here, um, and the architect is in the room, Paul. Um, 
we've done a number of projects uh, with Paul and his uh, partner David. And uh, that project in particular sticks out to me because it was very unique. We, we went into it with um, a design-build model which uh, has its challenges, but with the right team can be very effective. And we went in, a client had an, a budget that they really wanted to stick to, which was about 900,000, I think was the number, right? 900,000, 900,000. So the initial schemes came up somewhat higher than that. We made some adjustments within the budget together with the architect to get the number down to 900. Um, wasn't gonna be the dream home. They've been through this uh, rodeo before and they weren't gonna do that again. So we started at 900. The project evolved and developed into um, a project that ended up at about three and a half million. Um, and along the way, it was a very interesting process because of our communication um, processes. We would have weekly meetings with the team there and the homeowners would come and both, both the husband and wife were very involved. Um, and they've been through this, so they've done the high-end home. So they would come and they would say, we want this and we want this. And everybody said, that's beautiful, it's wonderful, but it's not in the budget. Well, tell us how much. We come back at the next meeting and tell them how much that would, and they say, sure, go ahead. And by the way, now we want to add this or change this, so this is the, the, the tub we picked. And throughout the process, this happened week after week, and every six weeks or so, my project manager would say, or Paul would call me and say, hey, Bob, you might want to show up and check in with the homeowner, um, because he's getting a little bit antsy about the budget. So I'd check in and I'd sit in the meeting and I'd sit through the whole meeting uh, where change orders came up and they'd say, yep, go ahead. And I will have already read through the minutes of the previous meetings. So, it, so once all the hard work got done, the homeowner would turn to me and say, and I know why you're here. You're here to calm me down. And I'd say, no, I'm just here to find out what's going on and I understand you're concerned about the budget. Yeah, here we are and we said 900 and, and and I'd say, okay, and, um, and I said, look, I just sat here for the last hour and a half, and you didn't say no once. I read through the minutes, and we always gave you the prices, and you said, go ahead. And he said, so you're saying this is my fault? And I said, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And he says, all right, I get it. And Right? I mean, it was every six weeks. It was like clockwork. And it, so I think that that you know, exemplifies to me you know, the architect would bring solutions. We would talk about the impact of that cost. And, and, and we very much guard the meat wagon, right? So um, we always look to find the best way to accomplish that for our client. You know, we take that as a, as a sacred sort of trust that they put in us. So, um, uh, so we would, the architect would come with a solution to their desire. We would indicate the cost and they could make a decision, yes, yes or no. So that to me just exemplifies the team process. And for a job to, to grow that much and still have a team that, I mean, they're still friends. They call me, you know, and, and, and uh, we come over, we service their house, we'll go over there for a coffee. Um, and that just to me exemplifies how it can go. Well, John, maybe, um what would be your most important takeaway or piece of advice from tonight for prospective clients, either doing this the first time or doing it again? It's, there's a, there's a, a lot of things. Um, you know, I know that you have an interest in the crafts. and I guess the one thing I, I wanted to say is um, Somehow people think that we live in an era where 
the craftsmen are gone or they don't exist or you, you have to you have to economize and you have to dumb down what you're doing and and you know it's just it's just not true the craftsmen are there and they're like the the shy girl at the dance just begging for someone to ask them you know and the homeowner can't get to them and uh, I guess an example is we were doing a, a big church renovation in Newton. Uh, it's Our Lady. It's this giant cathedral thing, big project, and and we were doing it all over again. And we designed all this stuff, you know. And there was, and these are church contractors, not good contractors like Bob. But these are people that were that were approved by the Catholic Church as being the, you know, the good guys. And one of the things we designed was a tabernacle. It was about the size of one of those things, you know, where they kept the host and it had a, and it was all bronze and it had doors like, you know, in Florence and it was, you know, really nice. And, and the prices came back from the five contractors between 190 and 230,000 bucks for all five of them. And so the Monsignor had kind of a little meltdown, you know, and he said, and I, he said, John, do something, you know, so. I called up my friend Bob Schur, who you probably all know, who's Skylight Studios. He's like the best sculptor, maybe in America, you know, and he's craftsman and all that. And I said, hey, Bob, um, I got a problem here. I designed this thing, and it's like 200,000 bucks. And, and it's it, what is it? It's a tabernacle. He said, oh, is this for our ladies? And I go, yeah. He says, oh, yeah, I gave all five of those prices to the five contractors. <laughs> and I said, uh, how much was it? And he said, $35,000. So, um, so I, you know, I contracted him directly with the church, and they built this beautiful stuff, and you can go see it. But step two was for the contractors to go back to Bob, I'm sure, and say, what can you make out of sheet metal, you know? And what can you dumb down for me? And then go back to the church and say, Oh, we really beat it up, and we come back at $130,000, you know? And, and it's, it's lose-lose, you know, because the craftsmen lose, and the, everybody loses. But the guys are there, and, and you have to find a way to bring them through the system and, and introduce them to the owners. Um, that's just my shout-out, because in, in all these, and, you know, the, the woodworkers here, uh, Reitman, those guys, I mean, those are craftsmen, but there's millions of them out there. But, but, and this is something for you, Bob. How do you get them through the system? Because, you know, the, if, and the last thing is, this, is, is some, some guy looked like Yoda at some big firm I worked with when I first started, and he was like the guru of the place. He said, whenever there's conflicts on a job, and you guys know this too, and anything, and you're confused and you don't know what to do, is always put the job first. If you always put the job first, Everything else takes care of itself, so, so that's Umbra, it. What would be your top takeaway from tonight? Um, well, I'm just, I, I have to follow what John says a little bit by saying that I'm, I, we tend to come at it a little bit differently in the sense that we or I regard the, the constraints or the parameters as part of the, that's kind of the fun part uh, or the, you know, Show me what the problem is, and here's here's how how we'll solve it. Um, 
and that usually does produce a range of something that's pretty, pretty down to earth. And then depending on the level of the client's um, imagination or, or interest or energy or what, you know, then we come up with the range of the different solutions. Um, I think, I think related to something where where this whole thing started was that, for me the. I don't I don't necessarily need the billion dollar client or the the I don't need those specific kinds of people. What I need to hopefully see is is when they start to get what's going on and they get really interested and excited, and then they start sort of sending me. <laughs> Emails and saying I really like this and look at this and wouldn't could this work et cetera et cetera. I find that's very much why I'm doing this is to to find the solution to make it interesting to open up their eyes to things that maybe they weren't um, aware of or didn't know that such possibilities existed and to sort of create an environment that is some place they want to be in and, and sort of activates their imagination. Um, and then the money, that's <laughs> there too. I mean, it, it, it's artisans absolutely um, are the, you know, the, the cream uh, at the top and, and certainly worth pursuing when you can. But I do agree there's always a, a, a range of people who will do Within, within the constraints, you can make it work. Sometimes lower budgets enforce greater creativity yeah. in a way. Yeah. Just to add one more thing, you know, I, I think it's important to note, as proud as I am of that job we were just discussing that went from 900 to three and a half and the client was happy, I, th I think I'm equally as proud when our process and the way that we do business helps the client to understand as we're going through the project and when you come across those inevitable um, unpredictables, right? Uh, or somebody has a great idea and wants to input something into the project that's gonna affect the budget by going up and the clients are very strict about their budget. That we're able to, through this open, transparent sort of communication, that we're able to help them. We can look down the road as a team, uh, the architect. So you know what? If that $5,000 issue is going to make a difference to the budget that you can't handle, let's look forward at a design element that maybe we can achieve the result nearly so with a slight change. And so that's why I think that communication and the team working together where we can, again, being, I hate to say it, but being empowered to be that transparent because, because we're on the team. It's not this bid process where it's, it's almost by definition a us against them where you know there's this tension around money. Yeah. The tension should be around the ideas and everybody bringing their ideas to the table. Um, and so I think that you know again the teamwork and the communication and the trust um, is really where I think we should yeah, all be headed that's quite frankly. Clear. I think yeah. you know, that trust and openness and kind of goodwill with an eye toward doing the best thing for everyone involved is clearly critical. Um, unfortunately, we're a little bit out of time. I uh, would love to keep going on, and I think we clearly could. Um, first, before thanking our panelists one last time, we did want to thank the folks from Cosmo Wright and Hague and United Marble for being our host tonight. But in particular,
a very special thanks to Adam Couples and Jim Cook here at the Boston Beer Company who made this wonderful venue possible and furnished all of the wonderful food and drink. I should mention that there will be tours available briefly of the barrel room immediately after this. Um, and I hope you will all stay a little bit and chat a little bit with our wonderful panelists. I would like to thank John and Andra and Christina and Bob for being part of this and being so giving and sharing of both your time and your expertise. And moreover, I would like to thank all of you for coming and being part of the Bad Talks. Uh, as John said at the beginning, we're always interested in having input for potential future topics because these things happen several times a year. Uh, unfortunately, only once a year open to the public, but three other times for the folks, who, many of whom are here, who are in the industry. Uh, on behalf of all of us, I just want to say thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this, found this interesting, and please stay and have some more private talks with everyone here because there's lots more to talk about. Thank you all. Thank you.